Good morning. Good morning. Uh, this is Ale and BT Wolf. BT, it's uh, great to have you here. Well, it's wonderful to be here, Ali. Yes, uh, welcome. And uh, of what I believe is the first episode of uh, Orange Juice for the years. Yeah, we have we have our orange juice. We have our music selection. Um, so yeah, it was it was this concept, I guess. I um, wanted to develop around the idea of how music, you know, goes so much deeper than just being entertainment. Um, it was a, a line from Oliver Sacks's book, Musicophilia, about how, you know, music can lift us out of depression or move us to tears. It is a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the ears. Yeah. And then this is going to be a, a run of eight episodes, at least uh, the first uh, quote unquote season, right? I have a thing with the number eight, so it, it kind of made sense. Yes. <laughs> then I think we'll, we'll hope to continue it for sure. Yes, and it's going to be every, for those out there tuning in, it's going to be every Friday live from Los Angeles from our studio, 9 a.m. to 10 a.m., which is a great way for me to start, uh, I believe, kind of start the week, you know, get, get it going. So uh, very exciting. And, and uh, in each episode, you're going to have a different guest, right? And you're going to be covered different aspects of uh, music and music creation. Exactly. So throughout the sort of course of, you know, my work so far, I, I guess I've gone into these different fields. You know, I've always been primarily a songwriter and musician myself, but because You know, I grew up, I loved album, the tangibility of records so much, that art form, uh, that sort of sense of storytelling, um, trying to recapture some of that magic in, in a very noisy world. I sort of deviated into science, technology, you know, space, um, fashion, art. So as a result, I, I know some really amazing people and I feel like, it'd be wonderful to tell their stories through the music that shaped them. So in a slightly different way. Yes. Yes. And then you yourself, as you were saying, uh, you, you're a, a, a singer, you're a musician, you're a producer, you're a songwriter, you're uh, all around like a creative uh, uh, kind of force. You know, I've seen uh, some of your work. I was looking at uh, um, uh, some of the projects you've done where you combine the way music is presented. And that was a big part of your work, how the music is presented or how it's inter how it interacts with the listener today. And uh, uh, my feeling for this series is going to be that as well, right? Uh, kind of trying to understand what's the role of music, how it connects with the listener in the in 2019, I don't know, in, in this second, you know, part of the, <laughs> or the, the end of the, the decade. Exactly. I think music has to, not redefine itself, but, you know, it, it has to find a new uh, relevance. And I think, and not that it is otherwise irrelevant, but that, you know, we really think of it as this background experience. And I feel like it has to have a deeper experience as well, because, you know, that's what allows music to imprint. That's what allows music to move people with, you know, Alzheimer's or help people with schizophrenia or Parkinson's autism. It's like music goes so deep to our core that, you know, we have to see it in that fashion. And so I think if we can start seeing music literally differently and having it exist in, you know, museums and meditation apps and all these other places where it's woven in, in a, in a sense where it will keep on hopefully living on. Um, 
Yes. Well, one of the things that uh, I noticed you mentioned is that you said in this noisy world, right? Uh, what do you mean by that? I think, and I actually only realized how noisy it was um, after spending a hundred hours in what was the quietest room on earth for several decades. It was the space where Helen Keller said she experienced silence for the first time. Um, and I was doing a, an anti-stream experience out of there with this physical record, playing my album on repeat 24 hours for a week, uh, Live 360 streaming that. People were able to log into that space and hear the music played in that pure focused way and they couldn't influence it, they couldn't shuffle fast forward. But then using live AR, the lyrics, the artwork would be flying out of the vinyl and coming to life around you and surrounding you as a listener and taking you into the visual landscape of, of each track. So that was for my record raw space. And this anechoic chamber was central to that. So ha having spent so many hours in there, I'd you know come out and realize just how our senses are, are bombarded all the time and how much stress that induces. Um, but also how music is one of those sort of background noises. It's so often on, you know, as something to kind of provide a, a sonic palette, but not to be listened to. And I think that's also part of the issue. It's like as much as having the background stuff, we need to have the foreground stuff. I see, like the active listening exactly. experience well in 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 talking about listening and uh, in talking about um uh where you come from musically right uh where's um where do you come from musically what's what's the uh, the first song that uh, made a big impact on you what um kind of what's what would you consider part of your musical dna yeah so you know i was thinking i was thinking about this idea of orange juice for the years and sort of what what would that music be that would ultimately be your remedy your tonic you know 10 years from now 30 years from now 40 years assuming we're still here um and so i feel like that first song that imprints is really important and it's not always the first song you remember um i think for me that would have to be elvis love me tender because I was, you know, six or seven. I'd started writing my own songs. I had no interest in learning scales or, you know, I had keyboard lessons and was totally not interested. And I would use my teacher to transcribe these songs that I was writing because I couldn't figure out the chords. And I'd come home with a cassette tape of a, of a song, having learned essentially nothing. Um, but the one song that I wanted to play that was someone else's was Love Me Tender. And I remember sitting there just falling in love with it. Yes. Well, uh, I say uh, we listen to it. I mean, it's always a good, any excuse to listen to that song. Absolutely. Cool. For those out there tuning in, Beauty Wolf here in Dublin. Love me tender, love me sweet, never let me go. Well, that was uh, Love Me Tender by Elvis Presley. And uh, yeah, that, that is a beautiful song indeed. <laughs> I mean, not like it matters at this point. I mean, of course, classic <laughs> of the classics. <laughs> for, not that it matters for me to say it, you know, it's, yeah, but it's, yeah, beautiful. It's a reminder, you know, that kind of you take it for granted until you put them in a different context. Well, and that simplicity of just, you know, a good song played on the guitar, on the piano and 
you just need a voice and one instrument and it's sort of enough. Yeah. And in regards to, to this song, uh, not to kind of talk about Elvis Presley, but is Elvis Presley in general a big influence on you or particular just this song? I, you know, I'd say he, he has to be in there just for the fact, the voice, the ability to play, you know, however many hour long sets and have that energy and have that sort of that presence. Um, I, yeah, I feel like he's not such a direct influence, but he was definitely at the core of shaping my love of music and, and how I thought about, you know, musicians and artists. I see. And does your family come from music or do you have a musical background in your family? Yeah. It's funny with my family because they, they're, on the one hand, entirely amusical or whatever, unmusical. Um, you know, none of them play, none of them sing. Um, but there's a great appreciation for music in different ways. I grew up with my mom and my brother and, you know, she had done this book on punk rock in 77 uh, as it was happening in London. Um, and then also a, a film, you know, documentary. Um, so she'd kind of come from that side and then my dad even though I didn't live with him had originally come to London on tour with the Stones because he was a poet a lyricist a, a sort of troubadour and I grew up with him as this rare bookseller having no idea that he had any life prior to really yeah interesting <laughs> so yeah. he, I, sorry, but with your mom too right you weren't fully aware no, of, that's what you told me before. Yeah, so it was actually it was actually this guy Craig Marks who I'm going to interview um, on this show. Uh, he was the editor for Spin and Billboard. Uh, he's now music editor for the LA Times, and he was interviewing me for my first album for this 3D uh, vinyl theater I'd created for the palm of the hand, um, and I met him for a coffee. And he said, you know, I've been really enjoying your mom's punk book. And You're like, what? I was, had no idea. I really had no idea. And he'd found a copy of it. It's very rare, collectible. Um, and I sort of, after that, I called up my mom and I was like, what, you know, what? why didn't you tell us? And she was like, well, I mentioned it, darling, one time, you know, washing up, you know, as in she'd said it once and probably when we were kids and we paid no attention. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so she she kind of, you know, she was a writer, she was a therapist, um, she was an incredible person and, you know, music was definitely a big part of that, you know, the house and discovering her record collection was kind of the beginning of that whole, my whole process of thinking about music differently because I just saw these records as musical books that you could open up and read like a story the artwork, the liner notes, the ceremony. And from that point on, I was imagining, you know, what worlds can I create for my albums? What will they look like? What will they feel like? Um, and that was sort of the beginning of everything else that I went on to do that was pretty, pretty weird. Yes. yes. Well, and then in regards to your dad, also, he was uh, also you found out uh, later on. I found out with my dad that he had any sort of rock and roll past because I was in the car with him, I was 15. I just got really into the, the Stones and uh, I was playing, you know, Sympathy for the Devil. 
And he was turning it down and I was turning it up and I was thinking, God, you know, all he, he likes classical music. He deals in science and natural history, you know, Copernicus, Ptolemy, all these rare books. He would never talk to you. So it was all, you know, I had this whole perception of him being very austere and stiff and uh, and he keeps turning this song down um, and then he gets to the end of the song and he says, there is a line in that song about me. And I felt like I jumped out of my skin. Um, suddenly it was this glimpse at this whole other life. <laughs> and he wouldn't tell me what the line was. He wouldn't tell me any of the story. But later on I found out it was uh, we laid traps for troubadours who get killed before they reach Bombay because he was a, a troubadour and he was, you know, part of the um, Cassidy, Ginsburg sort of crowd. Um, my godfather is Terence McKenna, was the, this DMT <laughs> guru. And um, he was best friends with Chris Jagger, who was Mick's brother. So they ended up traveling around India with them and they were the poets, you know, the troubadours and the stones were, you know, playing tricks on them and stuff so interesting yeah <laughs> so he didn't elaborate on that he just said that <laughs> just said that interesting. and that's been the my whole life trying to piece together what who he was really who yeah. he is yeah interesting i i wonder why you wouldn't want to share that with your with your kids i wonder what what brings back to you i you know another thing i, I think of is that how uh, you're telling me uh you are going through your family's uh, record collection or your mom's record collection. And I wonder what's going to happen to the kids today when they have children. Uh, are their children going to go through their Spotify playlist? I don't know. What's going to be, how are they going to be able to tell a story of what their parents did? Because before you say, you would joke, is that what are they going to do? Go through their hard drive for their MP3s? But that, not even that anymore. No. You're just going to go through their Spotify <laughs> if they keep paying the monthly fee to keep <laughs> yeah. it up. If they stop, then or that if, that's you know, gone. If Spotify continues like this, I'm I'm sorry. To, or if it shuts down, exactly. To be a, a, you know negative, but I feel like a lot of these platforms are gonna uh, are either gonna fall away or they're gonna have to evolve. Or you know, I I feel like we ultimately will return to something physical, something that tells a story, something that is an art form, because as human beings, we need that. We need to be moved. We need to be, you know, uplifted. We need to have our imaginations, you know, captivated, and they're not going to be captivated by a list of songs on a streaming site. Yeah, I, I do um, kind of struggle with that uh, idea back and forth on whether some things are just different, but they're just different. No, now they're better or bad. They're just belong to another generation or whether, uh, um, you know, and it's just not my generation, but just because of that doesn't mean they're worse or some things are actually not as good. You know, well, I think that, um, I think it's not about, I think you're totally right. It's not about saying one is good and one's bad, but what we've lost at the moment is a spectrum. You know, we have, streaming and then we have vinyl you know we have nostalgia and we have like what's current and and i think we don't have much else in between that we don't have something that's actually nostalgic but also new 
you know, and this is where I, this is where what I've been trying to look at because I think, you know, like the books that my dad deals in, you know, when I'd go over to his flat and he couldn't afford a shop, so he'd have the books in the in the flat and you know I'd pick up an origin of the species and be really worried like oh am I gonna should I put gloves on and he's like no like these books were made to last you know they're they're made well um, yeah. and they're both vehicles of knowledge but they're also art forms and so I think you know books stories albums films I think these I mean, letters things that never go out of fashion exactly yeah yeah exactly um well in 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 regards to um uh your own uh trajectory kind of in music right aside from what you um uh got through your family right from your musical family what what are, what is the music that uh that uh shape who you are you know what is the music that uh that kind of Not, not the kind of, not the love me tender kind of side. Not the thing that hit you hard as a, as a kid. You know that like, oh my god, this is the first thing. What is the music that that kind of like at an older age maybe you're like, okay, this is me. This is my generation. You know what is, uh, what what is that track? What is uh, the thing that had that big impact on you? Well, it was. I wish it was much older than six or seven. It was actually when I was eight, which is why I'm obsessed with... <laughs> with when you were eight? <laughs> yeah. So I was still a kid, but oh I. It, but it has to be... I, you know, I wasn't eight when that song came out. Oh, no. Well, it, <laughs> it had come out... Um, it had come out before. So this was a record that... Um, let me think. Let me do the math. So it was 91... I was, it came out when I was a baby, essentially, but I discovered it when I was eight and I was in Portugal and uh, my mom, you know, would take me and my brother to this tiny fisherman village in the south of Portugal and we stayed in this bar that was run by totally crazy but wonderful people, but crazy people. Um, and they would play Blood Sugar Sex Magic just over and over and over again. And the barman would play specifically Suck My Kiss and perform it to me as an eight-year-old, which is, you know, it's pretty like, it's pretty out there, pretty raw. And I was totally obsessed with this record. It felt like, you know, my world had suddenly been shaken awake and it was this possibility of like, you know, what is this? It's so raw. It's so primal. It's so exciting. And my mom was horrified, you know, she, on the flight back, she was like, your dad's gonna, if he finds out, he'll have, they'll, they'll take you away. You know, little does anyone know that my dad was actually way wilder than anyone. But, um, and I got home and I found a friend's brother to go and buy the album for me. Um, and I hid it from my mom and every time she was out, I'd play it. And even though the liner notes obviously had the lyrics, I, for some reason, wrote out the whole album by hand, lyrically, so I can still sing the, the whole record, um, which is, you know, a, a rare talent. Uh, but it was this also this thing of like realizing you couldn't listen to track seven you had to listen to it as a story. You had to start from the beginning because even with the segues, you know, funky monks would go into breaking the girl as an example. So, um, but for me, you know, suck my kiss was just like, yeah. Yeah. Let's go. Cool. Well, I say we listen to that. That was how by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Let's do it. 
Well, for those out there tuning in, we have BT Wolf here in the studio with Orange Juice for the Years. Uh, this is a first episode of an eight-part series where BT is going to be here every Friday, 9 a.m., um, live from our studio in Los Angeles in Silver Lake. And she's going to be interviewing different people today, being the first one uh, is this thing where I'm kind of hosting her own show <laughs> and uh, introducing her to the double of audiences. But, uh, but yeah, we're just talking about music. We're talking about, uh, our kind of her influences, where she comes from musically, what this program is about. And we're just now listening to Suck My Kiss, uh, from uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic by Rejo Chili Peppers. And that's one of the songs that made a big impact on you. Yeah. I mean, that whole record, um, even just listening to it now, it's like I, I feel like I'm eight and I'm feeling super rebellious and cool. <laughs> and, um, but, yeah, it's, you know, it's just that thing of um, that sense of imprinting, you know, yeah. that feeling of it just taking you right back there and everything that you loved about it then you still love about it, you know. It's a sign of it being amazing. You sh I guess you should be able to play it tens of thousands of times and it still has that impact the thing yeah and and from there i mean from uh, from that moment of uh, that that before and after where you say you're feeling rebellious from you feeling uh you know kind of like it changed you you know uh where do you go from there what what's the did that take you on a on a direction in life not like you know you were eight so of course it's not like you left the house and you know hit the <laughs> road you know but but you know in the in the, the kind of the big picture you know what what's what role uh um it, it was that somewhat kind of the beginning of of music really starting to have a, a being a force in your life that would take you places yeah, definitely. I think from that point, um, you know, I'd been sort of playing songs on the keyboard, writing songs and, uh, you know, didn't really want to learn anything, just wanted to write because uh, I felt I had that ear in that it just it just sort of made sense. I could just write songs and I didn't have to think about it. And then I think after Blood Sugar Sex Magic, I definitely from that point, as I got into my early teens, I, you know, I discovered um, this old broken guitar behind a grandfather clock in my mom's house. And, um, and, and there was a, a Spanish builder fixing the ceiling because the ceiling had caved in uh, in the kitchen. And, um, and he happened to be a virtuoso guitarist. So, wow. uh, yeah. <laughs> and because I never liked, I guess I never wanted to do it traditionally. Like I hated lessons, but he was, he was there and, you know, I got chatting with him and, um, and, you know, he told me that, that he was this, loved the guitar and I got this old guitar and he showed me something on it. Uh, and that was, that was the pretty much the only lesson I had on the guitar. But from that point I was hooked and you know I started writing songs um I had my first band called Aurum which was gold uh in Latin uh so very very high intellectual very uh kind of proggy prog rock yeah. kind of name <laughs> and we we saw ourselves as you it's know not a bad name it's, hey I think it's a great name yeah, I'm yeah. Very, what very year was that? that what what that, year so I was I was 15 14 so 
oh god my math so that must have been like uh 2002 okay um and then you know we but ho- our whole thing was we sort of saw ourselves as the female Led Zeppelin um so it was very but actually grungier than that so when i think back at the songs you know it was asylum troubled let it boil misery they were all pretty depressing and um and very dark but at the time that was where i was um and we started getting offered you know management deals and label things and and i remember thinking could i would i be happy doing this for 10 years you know it was because it felt very much like this is a phase and this feels great and i loved you know i loved doing it and it was real at the time but i knew that it probably wouldn't be still i i wouldn't be depressed i wouldn't be in that space in my 20s necessarily and so i felt i couldn't commit to that um but yeah orem was that was a big part of my my adolescence for yes. sure uh, sorry sorry if i missed it but uh, for how long did that band go a couple of years couple of years yeah, you know yeah. and then my best friend who was the singer who i was writing the songs and she'd sing them uh ended up going off with the guy i was in love with Ooh. and i was writing these songs for him but she was singing them at the shows to oh, him my and goodness. they were together and it was just too fucked up so at that point i was like okay this is for my mental health this yeah. is not good yeah yeah and uh, was that um um in a way do you find a music taking a bigger role in your life in terms of uh, not just something that you would consider only as a professional kind of career or or for, or for a life path you know if if you want to put it in a way of regardless of making money or not out of it you know but uh was that a, a moment where you started uh, taking music as a kind of a bigger part of, of, of your life in this instance of emotionally, you know, something you would rely on if you're down, you know, if you would use it to heal or to uh, get better from tough situations, like what you were saying, you know, it sounds like there was a lot of, you know, heartbroke, uh, heartbrokenness in there. And, you know, was, was that the time or I don't know. Definitely. I, I think I, I think music, you know, this is kind of why I love this idea of thinking about, music as orange juice for the years because i think music for my whole life was was a tonic was a remedy was something that i used you know to to balance myself out and definitely as a teenager um you know i was in a really really dark place and i i find these videos that i filmed hour long videos of me just sitting Playing, writing a song or playing, you know, Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You and then getting pissed off with myself because I made like one error. And it's sort of fascinating because I remember how much time I just spend completely absorbed in it. Um, and so I, I think from that point, it was, I knew I had, to, I knew that was what I was going to do in some form. And actually, the money, the fame, all of that stuff was so irrelevant. It was like, this was just, uh, this was the mode that made sense to me. Yeah. To, You're kind of stuck with it in a way. Yeah. 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 With, uh, with a brief uh, spat of acting in between and realizing that um, 
yeah, acting, I think that idea of standing on stage and saying someone else's lines, I just thought um, I want to stand on stage and say my lines. So Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, are you big on, on covering other people's music or is more always like about your own music? Because some people love that. They love the idea of reinterpreting other people's works, you know? And uh, I don't know. I, I'm I'm come from playing in bands, making music and all that. Never got into making covers. Partly, you know why? Because the, the songs I would cover, I really like, and I don't want to get sick of them. It's almost I don't want to look inside the box, like learning the chords and all that. It takes the magic out of the songs I like. I agree. I think that um, the way I saw it was if I'm going to sit down and spend two hours learning a song or you know a solo or whatever it is I'd rather spend two hours writing um and I think I always had that approach so I you know I ended up studying literature I didn't want to study music because I felt that that needed to be just uh I didn't want to learn rules unless I was going to learn all the rules to then know how to ignore them because I just had this instinct um and one time I had a guitar lesson at school and I played him this song I'd written and he was like, you can't use that suspended chord and why are you accenting on the upstroke? You're going to get a tired arm. And the, the, those were the two things about that song that I really liked and he was telling me that those were the things that didn't work. Yeah. So I, at that point I just thought, nah, I'm just like, I'm, I'm not interested. Um, and then ironically, you know, 10 years later I had Winter Marsalis, the trumpet man <laughs> that's a terrible way winter marcellus like the multi-grammy winning uh jazz classical musician going through the my, the songs that would make up my first album and sort of musically analyzing them because we'd become friends and i don't know why he was doing it but he'd come over and wanted to play through these songs on on the piano um and so that after that i was like well if winton if they're good enough for winton then you know on a music theory level, but that, that part had never concerned me. Um, and I think that, um, you know, I think covers can be wonderful when they're done in a totally different way. You know, for some reason it pops into my head because I was listening to it last night. Um, nothing compares to you, Prince, but yeah. actually that, you know, what Sinead did is you wouldn't even necessarily think of it as Prince except for that just the majesty of the the sort of songwriting but um yeah I was never into covers yeah yeah to, to put it short yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah but it, no it's interesting because it's also like it's not like you're not into other people's music you know if you're very much but you you can almost let it uh, uh, uh get in you uh, by just enjoying it uh, almost like as a uh almost like as, as a non-musician almost as a music fan you know, not analyzing. And I think it's interesting. One thing you mentioned is that, yeah, you could have gone down the road of learning every single rule of the book then to be able to break them. And that is one path, you know, where people learn. Not If you're going to go that way, don't cover one song, but cover entire catalogs. And then that's another way of, of finding your own voice, you know, but they're different, two different ways, Definitely. you know? Yeah. Uh, in in terms of uh, music that, uh, that, you think has a, a long impact in terms of music that you feel um, um, 
really goes goes beyond, right? Goes beyond uh, what you would just enjoy for a period of time. That is really part of part of you. What's what's a song that uh, means so much that you feel it needs to kind of like be you know sent into space? You know, like, what what would be a song that you send into space that you'd be like, okay, this is something that would speak about. It's hard to say it speaks about humanity, but it speaks at least about your version of humanity, you know, that you would uh, uh, present to uh, to other people in other worlds. So this is funny only because I did do a I did do a space broadcast of my record Raw Space into space using the horn that proved the Big Bang with Robert Wilson, who will be on another guest on this show. Um, Robert Wilson won the Nobel Prize for. Uh, picking up cosmic background radiation and proving the validity of the Big Bang. Um, and so it is something I, I've, I've thought about. And um, and it's interesting because it could be the reflection of our humanity. It could be what best way to communicate with other beings. Um, for me, I think this is a, a choice that no one would ever make. And there's a, there's the part of me that's like wants to make a cool choice, but I want to always make the honest choice. Um, it's a song by David Bowie that he sings with Tina Turner and he wrote with Iggy Pop. And it is on the one hand so cheesy and on the other hand, every time I hear it, it just makes me feel pure love and completely connected and like everything's going to be okay. Cool, I say we listen to it. It's uh, David Bowie and Tina Turner tonight. Well, uh, that's a great song. Sorry, we're just sharing another story that we can't share on the microphone. No. <laughs> but uh, for those out there tuning in, Orange Juice for the Years, hosted by BT Wolf. Today, first episode, and I'm here kind of uh, doing some sort of introduction to it. And uh, that was a song that you would you would send into space, uh, which I think is very nice because uh, uh, people from other worlds will be like, what is tonight? Exactly. <laughs> what is night and day? <laughs> <laughs> that was the whole reason behind the choice. Uh, David Bowie and Tina Turner. And, uh, and, and talking about uh, music that transcends, uh, music that uh, in a way you you use it as a vehicle for your own experience and and, and uh, on Earth, you know, uh, that talks about your life and uh, and so it's funny because you know you kind of like we're talking about such a deep things, you know, like like sending something to another civilization to be remember a billion years from now. Who knows, you know? Uh, what would be a song? Um, uh, for that you would play uh, at your memorial, and uh, and it's funny because this this the the one before seems pretty lighthearted, you know, in terms of telling the human experience. It's such a nice sunny way of putting everything about Earth, you know. Do uh, you have another interesting choice, and and what you would play at your memorial? I I guess I was a very weird kid because the first song I identified as being something to mark my life you know it wasn't like oh a song I want to get married to um it was you know again I was like six seven and I heard I can see clearly now the Jimmy Cliff version um and thought I want that at my funeral um and in some ways that that says a lot I think about 
the perspective, which is it's what you're leaving behind. If you're thinking about that as a kid, I guess it makes you um, reflect about it's not just what happens in your lifetime, but, you know, what do you want to contribute to the world? Orange juice for the years. For those out there, tune in. It's me, Ale, Ale Cohen, here with BT Wolf. Uh, technically, you're the host of the program. You're doing so but, uh, but I'm though. introducing you today. <laughs> and uh, we're listening to uh, uh, Jim, Jimmy Cliff's uh, I Can See Clearly Now. And that was a song one I played at your memorial. And, uh, and then the song we're listening to now is uh, Oh Darling by The Beatles, of course which we all know from Abbey Road. And uh, that is a song, kind of the opposite. Uh, what would you pass to your kids? What's behind that song? I think when I discovered my parents' record collection, my mom's record collection, and just spent all these hours with these musical books, opening up, you know, reading them like stories, entering into the world of the album, um, which then inspired, you know, me to create these sort of tangible formats for my records later on in the day. Um, Abbey Road was the first album I, I think I really remember entering into in my imagination. And uh, that was the one as, as a sort of whole record experience that really imprinted. And uh, for you, I mean, it's almost like obvious to ask this question. And I mean, you know, not necessary, but assuming the Beatles were a big part of your musical uh, influence, right? Absolutely. I think the Beatles, um, Lennon, you know, probably particularly, but what they contributed, that catalogue of song and the fact that they were, you know, so innovative um, and so, and they had that rawness, you know, I love the Beach Boys as well, but but the sort of rawness and the grit that the Beatles had, um, you know, I think it's hard to think of a better band when you, uh, of course, everyone that uh, creates anything in their lives, really any sort of work, you know, from science, from, you know, art and everything in between these days seems almost undistinguishable, the difference between one and the other. Um, we all want to, many times you create things with like, how is this going to be remembered or what you're going to leave behind, right, in your life. And when you create music, when you um, uh do work that goes beyond songwriting. Your your work goes uh, towards uh, you bring these experiences with your with your music, right? What's the intention behind the uh, that you intend to leave behind uh, with your work? The intention is really and always has been to remind people of the magic of music, to spread some love, to connect and uplift. Yeah, well, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Uh, for those uh, out there tuning in, can you tell us real quick what you think they can uh, expect out of the upcoming episodes of uh, Orange Juice for the Years? Yeah, so with you know the next seven weeks and potentially beyond, we're going to have some amazing guests. Next week, we've got um, Emmy Award-winning Donna Carey, screenwriter, producer, Simpsons, Parks and Recreation, Silicon Valley. Um, and then we have Nobel Prize winning scientist Robert Wilson, Ali Willis, Linda Perry. There's some really wonderful people. 
That's amazing. That's amazing. So Ali Willis is going to be here. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, that's great. She's a fantastic uh, person, artist. And uh, well, I say uh, we have to sign off uh, for our first episode of uh, Orange Juice for the Years. And uh, thank you so much, BT. It was wonderful to have you here. And uh, really looking forward to, to seeing you here every Friday for the next uh, seven Fridays. Yeah. And potentially more. And potentially more. Exactly, exactly. No, but but I know that for this, it was particularly the eight episodes because it, it shapes be the, the, the story. Exactly. Um, yeah. And then uh, I say we sign off uh, with one of your tracks, uh, BT Wolf uh, and Linda Perry, uh, Barely Living. What do you think? Perfect. Let's do it.